This is the second Sunday after Christmas. Uh, a lot of times we don't get to celebrate the second Sunday after Christmas because Epiphany intervenes. So we have the Sunday after Christmas, Epiphany, and then we go through Epiphany, but no second Sunday. But this year we're fortunate to have a second Sunday, and it affords the opportunity for the preacher to do a little recapitulation, and you know how much I love the word <laughs> recapitulation. So I want to say something to you about the Christmas themes, what we hear about on Christmas Eve, what we hear about uh, on uh, Christmas Day, and uh, the first Sunday uh, after Christmas. Every year at Christmas, uh, Christmas Eve, and on Christmas Day, I talk about the four affirmations. What is the significance of the birth of Jesus for the world? How have Christians understood this over time? And what are the, some of the things that they look to and say, this is part now of how we understand uh, God's yes to humanity. And so these affirmations are that we affirm the goodness of our humanity, we affirm that in Christ we can achieve the highest of our human potential. We affirm that it is possible for Christian people to be joyful. And we affirm that Christian people are to be people of and about peace, the shalom of God. So when we think about it, those are sort of the predicates for how we understand uh, the season how we understand uh, our humanity in a new and deeper and fuller way. On Christmas Day and then the Sunday after Christmas, we read from the introduction to John's Gospel. Uh, if you want to amaze your friends, you can refer to it as the Johannine Prologue. It's the introduction. And here we hear from... John, that Jesus is the Logos in Greek. He is the Word. But just like Shalom has many meanings, so does Logos. And my favorite is the organizing principle. In the epistle to the Hebrews, it says, Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and maturity. And by, na by that nature of that, we would say to ourselves, Jesus now becomes the organizing principle for human beings. We understand now in a special way how we can be united with him and with God's purposes for us, and that each of us makes a difference and is necessary for God's work in the cosmos that that is an important thing. A number of years ago, Dr. William Countryman, who was the professor of New Testament at the Church Divinity School of the Pacific, uh, wrote a little book called The Mystical Way in the Fourth Gospel. And he said in the, in the Johannine Prologue and throughout the Gospel, one of the, the goals... Of the, of the author of John's gospel was to speak to us about something that he calls mystical union. 
I always hesitate to use that terminology. It kind of sounded like <coughs> Twilight Zone stuff, you know. The mystical union and what might that mean. When I was in seminary many years ago, one of my professors, Urban Holmes, told us that there are two major threads of spirituality that run through our own spiritual tradition. They are pietism, which has its roots in the late 17th and early 18th century, which is the, the need for a felt experience of the presence of God in your life, sometimes referred to as the consolation, or certainly in frontier America and in our country, it's being born again. Having this transformative experience. And the other thread that runs through our spiritual um, emphases is something that he called mysticism. And when he used the term mysticism, he said this. Mysticism is understood as the ascent towards God, which involves certain practices. Purgation, emptying, study, discipline, and patience. Things you can put into your hands. Purgation is an old-fashioned term for purging from your habits of being and relating those things that prevent you from getting closer to God or for that matter being the best human being that you can be. Emptying is the process in prayer where you begin to develop the skill and ability to push to the side all of the distractions that you have on a daily basis. Everybody is distracted. And we live in one of the most distracted ages in human history. So nobody will ever be able to be perfect at that. Father Thomas Keating said when you begin with some form of uh, meditative or, or centering prayer, it's going to initially be like sitting in front of the Suez Canal while all the ships go by. <coughs> right? So developing the ways and the means to be able to push that to the side. Study is being the best student you can be about the deep things of Christian faith and belief, but also being the best student you can be about the things you need to be a good student of. In your vocation, in your life, in your hobbies, in whatever it is that you do that you keep up. I don't know about you, but when I go see my doctor, I'm, I'm hoping that she's reading the literature. <laughs> right? We want to make sure that you know what the latest deal is on some of this stuff. And it's equally true with the deep things of Christian faith and belief and what it is that's of interest to you. So you need to be a good student. Discipline is the development of the interior self-regulation and strength to be able to meet the demands and the opportunities that are in front of you on a daily basis. To be intentional. And finally, patience is the quality of realizing that spiritual progress, emotional progress, mental progress is not up to us on our time. We're not in charge of that. In the Greek New Testament, uh, there are two kinds of time. One is chronos, chronological time. And the other is kairos, which means time. 
So all of this happens in time. God's time. And we need to remember that because, you know, we want symptom relief in this culture and instant action. So the mystical journey involves cooperation with the divine initiative begun in you at your baptism and the knowledge that Father Keating is right when he says we are not God, but our true self is God and we learn how to get in touch with that as we become intentional about the practice of Christianity and the knowledge that we get with the four affirmations and the way we understand who Jesus is. Now, William Countryman says in his, in his little book, when he talks about mystical union, he is describing an experience of things or persons outside myself as direct and unmediated as my experience of myself is. An experience of things or persons outside myself as direct and unmediated as my experience of myself is. At one level, this may be an experience of the order of the cosmos and of my place in it, in which case it is called mystical enlightenment. If you ever saw the Joseph Campbell series, he said to Bill Moyers in one of the episodes, he said, I was on the track team at Columbia University and I was standing on the track and for about four seconds... I had an experience where I knew exactly who I was and where I fit in. Mystical enlightenment. At another level, it may be an experience of full knowledge of another specific being, in which case it is called mystical union. Union may be understood as implying a complete dissolution of the human who enters into it, or may appear as the complete opening of two realities into one another. The disciples who saw and heard Jesus realized when things got going and they had experiences that were baffling to them, they realized that it became sensible because they saw him in depth. The cumulative effect of their experience brought them to a saving knowledge of Jesus and who he was and why they were there as part of this deal and how much they were needed. So the three readings that we read today from Jeremiah and from Ephesians and from Matthew's Gospel do a kind of historical, theological presentation of how we understand the forward movement of the Incarnation. What God is doing in history Jeremiah lived and prophesied through the final catastrophic decades of the little kingdom of Judah. He survived the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BCE and subsequently was taken to Egypt by exile-seeking refugees. It is there that he lived out his last years. Now, as you know, you've probably heard a fair amount of Jeremiah read at the liturgy in the Episcopal Church, and if there's anybody who's prepared to paint the blue picture, it's Jeremiah, right? So Jeremiah switches gears today, and he speaks about two things. He believes that the destruction of Jerusalem was God's punishment 
for their lack of keeping the covenantal relationship that existed between them as the people of the covenant and God. And even though that is so, it is going to be followed by a period of deliverance, reconciliation and restoration. And this period of uh, deliverance is because, in Jeremiah's words, of God's everlasting love. God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. And by virtue of that, there is now going to be experienced by the people uh, restoration. Christians, followers of Jesus, are going to read that sacred text that has been around with them for a long time and say, you know, if we would have just listened more carefully, we would have understood how God's plan is unfolding in history. And that Jesus' coming is now going to be an instrument of finishing the process of reconciliation and restoration. And so that's sort of a predicate that they were beginning to hold a, a, a first principle, that they were beginning to understand about that as predictive of the coming of Jesus. I know I say these things a lot, but it's important to do, to do this. Uh, the letter to the Ephesians, uh, in all probability, at least the majority of the, the New Testament scholarship that's been around for a long time, would suggest that this letter was written by a disciple of Paul's about a generation after Paul was martyred. There are many good uh, uh, defenses of the Pauline authorship of Ephesians, but I would say that certainly the people that taught me and most of the literature that I've read would accept that this was deutero-Pauline. Who cares? Well, why you could make a good case for saying this is a, a positive thing and not a negative thing, not a debunking thing, is because it gives us some knowledge of the transmission of Pauline theology and the Pauline outlook through that period, say 20, 25 years. And how were people being obedient to the, Paul's teaching and Paul's theological outlook? How would we see this? And so today, Ephesians has uh, some different approaches, different emphases from the undoubted letters, the undoubted Pauline letters. So, for example, in Ephesians, we get for the first time the concept of the body of Christ, Jesus being the head, and we are part of Christ's body. What did Mother Teresa say? Jesus has no other hands but your hands, no other heart but your heart, no other legs but your legs, no other arms but your arms, to do his work in the world. So Paul today is speaking about that and speaking of the result being that now we have a new creation. We are participating in a new creation. And the way you can understand that is if you see in human relationship, if you see uh, from time to time in the life of the church, people doing the things that are consistent with what we read about in the biblical witness 
and where the highest and best of our humanity, the generous impulse, is seen. And it is there that we see the values of the kingdom of God. Jesus came here not to give us advice about how to get to heaven. I have to just say that to you. There are many other views about that for sure. But he came here to say the kingdom of God is here. You're part of the kingdom of God. We need to do the work of reconciliation and restoration here, not somewhere else. And that's the goal of the Christian faith and life. And so Paul in Ephesians, or the author to the letter of Ephesians, is saying some things to us uh, about how that is the case. Just by the way, how would people know that this letter might not be written by Paul? Well, Paul had secretaries. He dictated to secretaries mostly. And he had a certain style. And if you taught school and have had people write papers for you, know that uh, even if they don't put their name on the paper, within about three or four papers, you know exactly who wrote it. Right? Because they have stylistic preferences. They do things certain ways. They use certain words with greater repetition. So, in Ephesians... You can see it in the, in the text. In all the uh, undoubted Pauline letters, Paul would begin a sentence with uh, a Greek word, but we would just say, you know. You know, da-da. You know, da-da. Well, it doesn't appear at all in Ephesians. So he's either completely changed his, his style of writing, or somebody else wrote it, and was consistent with his theology all the way along. So it tells us something about that he, the guy was a good student. Matthew has a point of view in the writing of his gospel. All the gospel writers do. He was the most Jewish uh, of the gospel writers. He probably was a rabbi at one time. And he wrote about Jesus in a way that was important to him because his constituency was interested to see what the connection was between the, the, the words and works of Jesus and what Israel had said about the Messiah and about the continuity of God's purposes within the boundaries of the people of the covenant. So who was Jesus for Matthew? Jesus was the new Moses. He embodied in his person the new Torah. Where the law of love is the operative principle in all human interaction. And so in his gospel, he has this story about, have, did you notice that in this, uh, this story, there's a lot of dreaming going on. Joseph is getting a lot of information through dreams, right? You know, dreams are important. We live in the therapeutic culture for the last hundred years or so, and sometimes people who are in therapy are told to write their dreams down or to uh, think about whatever kinds of dreams they have. I bet some of you, if you're like me, have had some corkers. Although I remember about 30 years ago, I was going to engage in this practice of if I had a dream that I, I, I would write it down. So I had a pad by my bed, 
And one night I had this dream where in the dream I said to myself, this is the most brilliant thing I have either said or thought. And I woke up and I wrote it down on my pad and I put the pad aside and went back to sleep. And when I got up in the morning, I looked at the pad and it said, ice cream has no bones. You know, so you need to be careful. (laughs) Joseph has a dream, and in the dream, an angel tells him that King Herod is trying to kill Jesus, and you need to take him and marry and leave and go to Egypt. And so he does. He goes to Egypt until King Herod dies, and the angel comes again in a dream and said, it's safe for you now to go back. It's safe for you now to go back uh, to Israel. And so he does. And when he gets there, he realizes that in Judea, Archelaus is the king now. And he's afraid that he's not safe and his family's not safe. And so he goes to Nazareth. And he lives in Nazareth. And that's where Jesus grew up as a boy. Now, Matthew does this because he believes Jesus is the new Moses. And where did the original Moses come from? Egypt. So he puts Jesus back in Egypt, and he brings Jesus out of Egypt, who is now the great deliverer. And Jesus comes out of Egypt and now gives to his disciples and apostles, the new law. So you will notice as we read later in Matthew's Gospel, which continues, we're going to read about the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is going to be delivering the new law from the mountain like Moses brought the tablets down from the mountain. In Luke, we have the Sermon on the Plain. So there's a different emphasis. So Matthew believes that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. And he will now become and be seen as the fulfillment of that messianic yearning, both in the kingly sense and in the priestly sense. So people will begin to see with greater clarity moving forward. Tomorrow begins Epiphany, where the emphasis shifts. We are now celebrating the presence of Christ to the church, and this brief Christmas period is the celebration of the presence. And tomorrow, we will celebrate the manifestation of Christ to the world. So figuring out how we put what we've learned as we have thought and prayed and reflected about the presence, how we put it in our hands, how we become the transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love that we're called to be. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, 
We are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. Amen.